We are in the time of year that each and every year we turn our focus from getting and from the consumerism of our culture and we shift it toward Jesus. And we focus on God's generosity toward us as he sent his son Jesus to redeem us, to save us. And each year as we focus, we do this with the idea of giving and giving out of a sense of radical generosity. And this year as we prayed through what we should focus on, it was very clear that as a group of people, as a church, we wanted to do something about the global refugee crisis. So this year we are engaging in the Reclaiming Christmas initiative and we have set the goal of raising $250,000 to go toward the work of three organizations globally, the Preemptive Love Coalition. If you remember, um, Jeremy Courtney was here just a few months ago and he shared about the work that they are doing on the front lines in Iraq. And as a matter of fact, just this week, Outside Aleppo, they are serving Syrian refugees, serving 25,000 meals a day to men, women, and children. Locally, we are going to be partnering with the Renew Project that is right here in Glen Ellen. And it's an organization that has a team of 40 women, volunteers, artisans. And it's an organization that creates a safe space for women to share their stories, to practice English, teaches them a skill, and even offers employment. And then regionally, we are focusing on World Relief DuPage Aurora. And World Relief works in partnership with the church and envisions the most vulnerable who have fled war and persecution and torture, transformed socially, economically, and spiritually. And they do this by providing educational services, initial resettlement services, goal-oriented case management, legal services, and counseling services to help individuals who have been resettled overcome the trauma that they have experienced. I first became familiar with the work of World Relief about 11 years ago as I was interning there in seminary. And I was a classroom aide in a room for pre-literate learners. And this is a classroom environment where all the individuals coming came from cultures where there was no previous written language. And I learned so much in my three years with World Relief. There were stories that were told of people who have fled Rwanda and the Sudan and Afghanistan and the Liberia and so many places around the globe. And some of the students told stories about how in the middle of the night, people who they had just worshiped with days before came with machetes to their front door, pounding on the door. And they fled out the back windows for their lives. 
And there was students from Afghanistan who returned home from shopping one day to find out that their house had been blown up by the Taliban. And they had lost spouses and children. And they took the family that was left and they fled over the mountains by foot from Afghanistan into Pakistan, hoping for safety and a new way of life. And some of them, when they arrived on our soil, believed that they had been brought here as slaves until they experienced the love and the grace and the hope of the staff at World Relief DuPage and the church volunteers who wrapped around them and created a safe community for them. One day my husband and I went to visit a student in my class who had been in a car accident. And she invited us into her home. And I didn't know it until that day, but in the small two-bedroom apartment in Wheaton, there were nine people living there. And as she gave me a tour, all that they had were f- for food was a half a jar of peanut butter, nine eggs, and a couple cans of orange soda. And they had to sit down at their table. And they cooked six of those eggs that they offered to us with smiles on their face and a pure sense of generosity. And they gave us those two cans of soda. And then they looked us in the eye And the student said to us, I praise God for you. And then she looked at my husband and she said, you are my brother. And then she looked at me in her broken English and she said, you are my sister. Ladies and gentlemen, we are living in a time of one of the greatest humanitarian crisis in the history of the globe. And it is my hope that we can look back on this time in history and that our children and our children's children will be able to say of us, my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents showed up and they showed the love of Jesus to the most vulnerable. So in a moment, I'm going to call the ushers down. And there are three ways that you can give to our Reclaiming Christmas initiative. And all of this is over and above giving. You can give by putting something in this envelope, your gift, and putting it in the offering basket or dropping it by the office. You can also text and choose Reclaiming Christmas. Or you can do it online. And again, just use the pull down, Reclaiming Christmas. But 100% of that giving, 100% of what is sold in our Freedom Store will go to the good work of the Preemptive Love Coalition, the Renew Project right here in Glen Ellen, in World Relief, DuPage Aurora. Someone invite the ushers to come down. Please bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much, God that when in our sin we were strangers to you, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to save us and to bring us back into community with you. God, we thank you that Jesus is one who is familiar with our sufferings, one who was indeed a refugee himself. God, you allowed us to be saved by a refugee. 
God, today, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, that you would break them where they need to be broken, that you would make us courageous where we need courage, God, and that you would mobilize us to be your church and to love our refugee neighbor well. Lord Jesus, we pray humbly that you would take these offerings, God, and that you would multiply them and that you would do with them more than we could ever ask or imagine for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Okay, if you say so. No, we are so glad that you are here with us this morning. If you were here last week, you know we are starting Uh, We started last week a new series called Reclaiming Christmas. So beyond the idea of a generosity initiative during the month of December, this idea of Reclaiming Christmas is more than just a generosity initiative. It's a whole sermon series as well, where we seek to push against what the world has made Christmas and reclaim it for what it was intended to be, which is an opportunity for us to reflect on all that God has done. By sending his son to be born in a manger, 33 and a half years later, to die on a cross, be raised from the dead, so that you and I could have life eternal. That is what Christmas is all about. And yet we have made it something completely different. Ray told us last week that we will pour an estimated $465 billion into the economy during this Christmas season, all in an effort to make Christmas great. So we want to push against that and say we want to come together and do together what we could not do as individuals, that we would sacrifice some things so that others might have a different experience this Christmas season. So often during this, the busyness and the frenetic energy and the, everything that happens during this month, we can lose sight of Jesus. And so in an effort to reclaim Christmas, we also are in an effort to reclaim Jesus. In order to fully understand what it means to reclaim the idea of Christmas, we have to understand what it means to reclaim Jesus. And so last week, we started this series by, Jesus, by, by Ray talking about the idea of Jesus as a refugee. And in that sermon, he unpacked our desire as a church to do all we can to love the refugee. Why? Because Jesus told us to, and because he was, in fact, one. And so this morning, I'd like to briefly look at the idea of Jesus as an activist. The dictionary defines an activist as a person who campaigns to bring about political or social change. And when we think of the word activist, we conjure up all kinds of images in our our minds, don't we? We think of picket lines and sit-ins and hunger strikes and angry groups of people chanting their frustration. And it can be hard to see Jesus through that filter, that idea of being an activist. But, but an activist is someone who pushes against the oppression of the day. And Jesus did that, a lot of that. And we have trouble seeing Jesus as an activist, I think, because we see him as this religious figure rather than a political one. And so often the media Jesus 
portrays him or paints him in this picture of being sort of a soft, sort of passive person. But the Jesus of the gospel was something much different. The Jesus of the gospel was, in fact, an activist. And maybe we struggle to see Jesus in that light because we don't see a lot of stories of him actively protesting or civil disobedience or resistance against the powers that be, but he did all of those things. Jesus spent a significant amount of his teaching time protesting against the unjust religious system of the day, a system that held his people in bondage. He spoke against this system, and he called its leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to task on a very consistent and regular basis. Jesus engaged in civil disobedience. He marched into the temple, and he turned over the tables of the merchants, driving their animals out of the temple courts with a whip. We tend to gloss over that story in Scripture, or or at best bring it up to defend ourselves when we lose our own cool. But Jesus was engaging in active resistance to an oppressive regime. Think about the ways he advocated for those who struggled to advocate for themselves. He debated the Jewish rabbis. He fed the hungry. He defended the poor. He stopped the stoning of a woman. He encouraged others to live in love with a loving heart and loving actions. He expressed compassion toward others and encouraged his followers to treat others with compassion. Jesus was an activist, an advocate in the truest and purest sense of the word. The real Jesus, not the Jesus of the media, advocated for the refugee, the poor, the marginalized, those who you and I are afraid of, those who you and I are a little unsure of. He advocated for us all, black, white, Muslim, Christian, Hindu, none of the above. We are all welcome at his table, and as a result, we are all welcome at this table. This is a place, Parkview Community Church will be a place that welcomes the refugee to our table because Jesus did. When I think about that side of Jesus, that advocate side of Jesus' personality, that's the side of Jesus that broke through my heart many years ago as someone who felt the need for an advocate. Jesus became an advocate for me. And and as a guy who's been a pastor for a long time, who's got a couple of kids and a 20-year marriage, I can tell you that to this day, Jesus is my advocate. That he advocates for me on a regular basis as I fumble through this life. As I try to be the best husband and dad and pastor and leader that I can be. Jesus, I need Jesus to advocate for me on a very consistent basis. And so he does that for me. He does that for the marginalized. He does that for the refugee, and he does that for you. The Scripture records lots of moments where Jesus was an activist, but potentially the most well-known is recorded in the book of Luke. So if you brought your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some in the chair in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, Take one of ours. We love it when people steal our Bibles, and so I want to encourage you to do so this morning. So this is likely a very familiar passage for some and certainly a familiar story to us all. It's the parable or story of the Good Samaritan. And as with all of Jesus' parables, they are intended to solicit a decision from the hearer. 
They are intended to evoke a certain level of emotion, a response. So I want you to read it with that in mind. So follow along as as I read it. Uh, Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is a lawyer speaking to Jesus in a crowd of people. By lawyer, I mean an expert in the Old Testament law. This was a religious authority, someone who understood Scripture in a big way. And he's standing there before Jesus, attempting to test Jesus. And I don't think in a, in a malicious way. I don't think in a critical way. I think he was genuinely trying to test Jesus and understand what it means to have eternal life. And Jesus responds in verse 26 by saying, What is written in the law? He replied, And how do you read it? Jesus, so good at this, turns the corner and asks the lawyer a question. How do you understand Scripture? The lawyer responds by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, You've answered correctly. And then Jesus turns just another notch, and he asks a follow-up question. Um, Jesus replied, um, Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, Do this and you will live. But the, but the expert in the law says, But who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, He tells the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came uh, to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So here's a man, a Jewish man, wounded, robbed, beaten, naked, laying there on the ground. He's somewhere between the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain as people are coming down from Jericho. These two religious leaders of the day, a priest and a Levite, a priest being sort of the authority in the church, the Levite being this assistant in the church, two religious leaders of the day walk past this man, one of their own, laying there on the side of the road. And the hearers of the parable, the people in the crowd with the lawyer, were expecting Jesus to continue down that sort of religious pattern, right? The idea of threes. We got one, two, and now Jesus is going to hit them with a third religious oppressor. But instead, Jesus does what Jesus does. And he says in verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, administering the first aid of the day. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, two silver coins, enough to sustain this person in this inn for 25 days, 24, 25 days. And he gave them to the innkeeper. And then he says, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. So here's this man, this Jewish man and this Samaritan man. These two were not friends. In the Jewish culture, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. The hearers of this story would have experienced this as someone they did not like, they distrust, even hated. But here is a man, this Samaritan man, who takes pity on a Jewish man. 
And he goes above and beyond. In fact, he says to the innkeeper, whatever expenses are incurred, just let me know and I will reimburse you. Jesus is telling this story primarily because the story has value, but he's also, again, pushing against that idea of who is your neighbor. And so Jesus says in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. The answer to the question, how do I attain eternal life? Jesus is responding by saying, well, the way in which we know you have eternal life is when you stop on the street and you help your neighbor. There is an understanding that those who love God will love others. Now, here's a man who this was not in any way, shape, or form his neighbor. He didn't look like this person. He didn't dress like this person. He didn't talk like this person. He didn't believe the same things this person did. And yet this Samaritan man chose in that moment to be a neighbor to that Jewish man lying on the street. And Jesus is saying that is the embodiment of what it means to have eternal life. That is the embodiment of what it means to be a follower of me. The Samaritan made himself to be a neighbor. What Jesus is saying is love shouldn't be limited by the person, the thing, the object, but it's an extent and the equality of the control of its subject. And furthermore, love is demonstrated in an action, and in this case, an act of mercy. It cost him something. It cost him clothes and wine and oil and transportation and money and time. But he served and he loved his neighbor. Tim Keller, uh, who's a pastor and a writer in his book, Generous Justice, wrote this. We instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. And Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say to anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. Jesus returns to the original question, what must I do? And Jesus responds by saying, go. And do likewise. Eternal life comes to all who believe. But the active expression of that belief is loving your neighbor. And finding your neighbor is an art form. Because it so often is someone who looks different, dresses different, thinks different than you do. And so as we seek to serve the refugee, both globally and right here in our own backyard, that's our hope, that's our desire, that we would love our neighbor well, that we would in some way be the Good Samaritan. And so this morning as we conclude, I've invited 
some friends, some new friends of ours to come and um, talk to us a little bit about what this means. So back in the, in the Freedom Store, in the Christmas Freedom Store, there's a book called Seeking Refuge. Well, it's written by a guy who lives right here, several people. Uh, but Matthew Sorens is uh, the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization uh, for World, World Relief. And, and so I've invited him to come, and he's brought a friend with him. So why don't you guys come? You guys can welcome him, yeah. So this is Matthew, and this is Pyong. Yes. Did I get that right? Correct. Awesome. I practiced all morning. So we're so glad that you guys are here. Pyong, would you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do uh, for World Relief? And then, Matthew, I'll ask you a few questions about the book. Yes. uh, I'm I'm with the American Corp at the same time with World Relief and helping the newly arrived refugee to adjust with U.S. culture and how to be a self-sufficient people out there, and that's what I did all the time. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Well, uh, Matthew, you've written a couple of books. This is really your second book on, on sort of this issue. But what compelled you to write uh, this book? What was sort of the impetus around writing this particular book? Yeah, it was probably just about a year ago, so this book's quite new. Um, we wrote another book on immigration kind of broadly about seven or eight years ago. And at the time, refugees, specifically immigrants who have fled persecution, were so uncontroversial that we barely needed to mention them. Hmm. And that's not true right now. Yeah. And so it was probably last fall, and uh, as, as the global refugee crisis was over the news, you know, somewhere around 21 million refugees in the world, we both felt at World Relief like the need was greater than ever before. Uh, not just for people in general to care, but for the church to step up and say, we are going to be here in the United States and throughout the world at the center of the solution to the refugee crisis. And also that people had more questions than ever before. Uh, We realized that a lot of Christians probably haven't thought about this as a biblical issue, though there's a lot that the scriptures say that would guide us here. I mean, starting with Jesus himself as a refugee. And also that people have a lot of questions right now about security and economics and demographics and all these questions that we hear on the news. So we wrote the book really to help answer some of those questions and try to orient people to look at this as a, a biblical issue, as a, as a missional opportunity as well for the church. And what's been the response? You know, I think we've been really encouraged. I mean, obviously, refugees have not become uncontroversial in the last year. But from a church perspective, we've seen so many new churches come forward and say, how can we be a part of welcoming refugees into our community? How can we also help care for refugees who are not in the United States, where the vast majority are not coming to the U.S.? Um, so we've been really encouraged by that. And what, what would you say in, in your work is maybe the greatest misconception that Americans have around the refugee crisis? There's a lot of misconceptions right now. Um, I think one is just the demographics, especially in terms of refugees coming to the United States. First of all, that's less than one half of 1% of the refugees in the world. So we're not taking all the refugees in the world. We're taking a very small percentage. And despite where the media attention is, they're not all coming from Syria. Um, A small number are, and we're happy to serve them. Um, But the number one country of origin for refugees who were settled to the U.S. last year was the Democratic Republic of Congo. And most of those people were Christians. Um, The year before that, the number one country was Burma. Um, Also, not a primarily Christian country, but most of the refugees coming from Burma are Christian minorities who are persecuted for their Christian faith. So it's both an opportunity to stand with the persecuted church, as well as to, as there are people from other religious backgrounds, to make disciples of all nations right in our own community. That's good. And in your opinion, what what is the role of the church in that? What, what, What is our role? 
You know, our vision at World Relief would be whenever possible, uh, you know, we're one of nine agencies nationally tasked to, to resettle refugees, working with the U.S. State Department. Wait, how many? Nine agencies There's in the nine country. nine agencies in the United States. And we're one of them. One of them. And we're the only one operating here in suburban, you know, the western suburbs of Chicago. Okay. What makes us a little bit distinct is our mission is not just to help, help and resettle and integrate refugees, so we want to do that. Our mission is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Um, and our staff are amazing. We've got one of them here, and we've got many others who work incredibly hard to serve refugees. But frankly, they can't be best friends of every family that arrives. But when a team from a local church or a small group from a local church says, we're going to step up, we're going to welcome those people, we can, maybe even being there at the airport, helping set up that apartment, they have the capacity to really go deeper on a relational level. And in my experience, what a lot of refugees will tell you is their biggest need is a friend. You know, many people show up here and don't know anyone. They don't know the language in most cases. They're adjusting to a very different culture. And to have someone who will very patiently walk alongside them, help them to adjust, help them to understand simple things, like when the mail comes and it says you want a million dollars. Unfortunately, you probably didn't win a million dollars. You know, it's those sort of things that most of us know what to do with. But if you're new here, you might need some help to understand some of those things. That's good. Bjorn, would you tell us a little bit about your story, how you uh, came to be here? Yeah. Thank you, Pastor Dave. As you know, I go by Piang, my last name. Uh, culturally, we don't have a family name. And uh, if you call me, like in American context, uh, if you call me Zam, so Zam is my, my grandpa name. Huh. So you're literally calling my grandpa name. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why we go by Piang. You know? And um, I grew up in uh, Burma, somewhere in the Northwest. Uh, and um, uh, most of them are Christian in that area, but the whole uh, country is all about Buddhists, and 85% are Buddhists. So, you know, um, in Buddhist culture, and eye context is uh, very different from American culture. So, uh, you are a student, and then you can do eye context with your teacher, and you have to go down that way, and uh, because this Buddhist culture and kind of thing, it doesn't mean that you disrespect but you're listening and showing your respect. So in America, when we come here with this eye contact, it's somehow uncomfortable for the first uh, few years. Sure. And you, you have eye contact and job interview kind of things. So that's how uh, we grew up. And uh, there are times we literally think of, uh, why am I Christian? You know, uh, uh, What is like freedom? That's been a big question. What we thought of is like freedom is just in a... Uh, a movie setting and kind of thing. That's what we we really feel because of our government, our military uh, uh, military uh, dictators. So it's been five decades, and we are under this pressure for so long. And the school system, or even religion, you can build a church. You can uh, really claim that you are Christian. They kind of thing, and if you are Christian, they think of you that you are holding a foreign religion or you know a Western religion kind of thing. So we have our own culture, and why you become Christian? They kind of thing. A lot of fear, a lot of uh, insecurity when you are a little kid, and uh, a lot of uh, you know uh, pressure when it comes to your faith uh, background. From there, uh, I moved to the capital city where a lot of people are out there. It's totally a Buddhist thing. Even in the school, um, when you go just through school like in the morning, and then everybody will 
take off the sandal shoes and kind of thing, and then go to uh, sit down and then have a Buddhist prayer chant kind of thing. And you are the only Christian out of that 50 students, and you have to literally say quiet and remain. And there are a lot of uh, um, mixed feeling out there, and you feel like, hey, whoa, I'm only one here. Uh, how about the other Christian out there in the world? What will be the experience they have things? So we are so anxious about things and life. So, so, um, and making a long story short, I when I came to America last uh, uh, six years ago to study here in a, a University of Chicago, and uh, when I see a lot of church and you know kind of thing, and I thought, wow. Mm. This is the atmosphere that I've been looking for, and uh, kind of, you know, uh, this is like freedom at all, you know. So yeah. that's how I end up here in That's great. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, just as we kind of wrap up our time together, what as we seek to be a, a church that um, makes a spot at the table for for the refugee, that we would be a place that would welcome uh, the refugee into our community. From both of you, I'd love to hear what would be the sort of piece of advice or words of wisdom that you would give to, to us as a church as we seek to do that well. Yeah, I think I would say, and it feeds on this, the story of the Good Samaritan, this command to love our neighbor sometimes butts right up with a sense of fear. Mm. And there's a lot of fear in refugee communities as they're arriving here for the first time. But there's also a lot of fear in, among American citizens right now. I mean, I think a lot of the media rhetoric around this has helped create some of that fear. And I think it's important to remember that scriptural teaching that perfect love casts out fear. We look back at the Good Samaritan, you know, he had a few things to be afraid of, stopping and helping this person on the side of the road. I mean, this was a dangerous road where people get robbed and beaten. Mm -hmm. That might be why the priest and the Levite went on by on the other side. They might have been acting very prudently Mm -hmm. from a human perspective. Um, Now, I would add to that, I actually think welcoming refugees in the United States is very, very safe. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a study recently that the odds of being killed by a refugee committing a terrorist act, which I think is what a lot of people are afraid of, is, is less than one in three billion. Um, so, I mean, the, the, odd, the reality is there's never been an American killed by a, re- a terrorist who came in through the refugee resettlement program since 1980. But even if there are fears, we're commanded to love our neighbor, and that love is to overcome the fears that, that folks may have. That's good. Thank you. Um, you know, America is so new for refugee like me. So uh, we, we have a high expectation when, it, when, when we uh, come to America and uh, having a lot of sense of, uh, you know, uh, feeling and learning U.S. culture and job skill and then, uh, how to drive the, the U.S. law, U.S. culture, individualism, kind of thing, a lot of things we adjust it and... And, and we feel like the first three to six months, we feel like, oh, I'm in heaven and kind of thing. But when you go to it after six months, when you're about to really rely on yourself, depend on yourself, things, oh, wow, I'm feeling like a little hell here, out here, kind of thing. So uh, for me, it's like when you connect to it, it's relationship is so important. And in that way, language will be a barrier a lot of time for, for us. So... Um, when you go through with them, uh, um, uh, and the relationship, if if you want to make more relationship, is it bringing uh, to know more to 
you know, to have a deeper relationship. And I would say uh, food is a great thing to connect each other, isn't it? Uh, but how many of you like spicy food? Not really? Oh, yeah. Wow, a lot. Look at that. So Burmese, uh, Asian people like spicy things. Very spicy, hot things. So get connected with, with that food and then try a little spicy thing and yes. then let something out come here. <laughs> so let's it. do connecting in, in that way. That, that will be a nice thing. Yeah. And although we might not speak the same uh, language, the perfect thing, you know that everybody has a language of love, isn't it? Mm. They speak a language of love. You connect the sense. That's where we we grow together, we connect together, and the love that you share, the things that you share are more connected and more sense, and we always love it to be here, and thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys for being here so much, and um, in a minute, I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind closing our time together in prayer. If you're okay with that, you can pray in whatever language comes natural to you, but, <laughs> but before, we, before we do that, I, I just want to close by just you know, saying, for, for a lot of years, the church has been praying that the areas of the world that were closed to the Christian gospel, right, that, that band in the middle of the globe that um, is predominantly a Muslim area of the world but has been closed to the Christian church. We've prayed for years that God would allow the church to go and be in that community, to serve and to be in that part of the world. Well, the reality of that is that that area of the world is coming here. It's coming here. And the thing that we've prayed for for so long is happening. It's happening in a different way, in an only God sort of way. But the prayer is still the same. God, how can we help? How can we show love? Revelation chapter 7, we're given an image of what heaven will look like. It says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great war, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell before the throne and their faces to the ground. They worshiped God. They sang, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever and amen. And amen. The nations of the world together in heaven, that is the picture of what we have to look forward to. We have an opportunity in this time, whatever time God gives to us to live on this earth, to go and do likewise. So that's our challenge this month, to go and do likewise. So will you pray for us as we uh, wrap up? Thank you. God... You are the author of love, a living water, a God of hope. I pray that you will use our finance, our hearts, our service to bring a new world on this earth. God, just like someone who stand out there and say, go do likewise. I pray that each and everyone will go out to our neighbors, our friends, our relatives around here and go out and share that love. Bring hope to the nation. 
bringing back to the place where you suppose us to be. Make us to be like you, O oh God. In all the circumstances that we are facing, we know that you are here with us. Let your peace move among us. Let your peace dwell among us. Let your glory shine to us. May your name be praised from generation to generation, from different race to different people. May your people someday reclaim and say that Jesus is Lord and confess that you are a God, the Savior, the Redeemer, the coming King, the King that we worship, a God who saved us and a God who is coming back for us. Thank you, Lord, for you for your salvation. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Hey, will you help me thank these two for being here with us? Thank you. Well, listen, my hope, our hope is that this season would be filled with joy and excitement and the giving and the receiving of gifts But at the same time, it would be a reflection of Jesus to the world. That we would take those moments, every opportunity we have to push against the culture of the day, to push against the fear that comes, and that we would love, love, love. That we would choose to be a neighbor to somebody. So that's going to be my prayer. As we wrap our service, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that you have the courage and the boldness to give sacrificially and to love unconditionally throughout this Christmas season. So let's pray together. Father, as your church leaves the building today, we're grateful to you. We're grateful to your son who we celebrate and worship. We're grateful for the sacrifice of his love for each of us. God, would you give to us the courage to boldly reflect that love to the world around us, that we would actively seek out our neighbor and show them love, even when they look different, dress different, sound different, think different, that we would love them because you first loved us. So give us the boldness and the courage to push against the culture, to push against the fear, and to love, love unconditionally. Lord, thank you again for your love and your grace and your mercy. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen and amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.